Welcome to the Philosophy Cast, where we take complicated philosophical topics and break them down for everyone to understand so that you, the listener, can gain new perspectives on the world. I'm your host, Alexander Chotai. In today's episode, we will be interviewing Professor Timothy Williamson from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. He has done extensive work on the philosophy of language, and specifically about how factors like ambiguity and knowledge play into our use of language. As you may have noticed, these are things that were covered in the most recent episode about the philosophy of constructed languages. So, the Philosophy Cast was very grateful to interview Professor Williamson to elaborate on the philosophy of language in the context of conlangs. Professor Williamson, thank you for your time. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the Philosophy Cast. We're really glad to have you on. One topic of the podcast is ambiguity in communication, because a large part of the motivation to create constructed languages or conlangs is to reduce such ambiguity. So my question is, what role do you think ambiguity plays in our communication from a philosophical point of view? Ambiguity is something fairly specific. It's it's where you know a, a word or an expression has more than one meaning. And, you know, I mean, the sort of paradigm of that would be the word bank, which can mean a financial bank or a, a river bank. And, you know, if you were to look up the word bank in a dictionary, you'd find different entries for those two meanings. Whereas something that is a bit different is vagueness, uh, like the word tall, for example. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty vague what counts as tall and and what what doesn't but but i mean that's not exactly ambiguity because you because you know you wouldn't expect to find lots of you know thousands of different dictionary entries for tall and you know you in the case of bank you could think of it as even that well there are just these two words which just happen to be spelt and pronounced the same whereas that's obviously not what's going on with with tall my feeling is that although you do get ambiguity sometimes in normal conversation it, that's relatively limited and vagueness is a much broader uh, phenomenon that that you get in almost virtually any use of uh, of language i mean philosophy is quite is quite good at uh, sort of consciousness raising about the sorts of vagueness that that are are relevant um and you know, and philosophers are quite, you know, are quite used to sharpening things up. You know, in in a way, it's that's not exactly the same as you'd find in, in you know, with a a lawyer or something. But but it's not completely unlike that uh, either. I mean, of course, you can't really expect to completely eliminate vagueness because you know all the attempts to clarify are, are themselves being made in language which is not you know not totally precise and but but definitely you you can you can reduce vagueness particularly you know if you're talking in a particular context and you know in for that context you can specify you know a bit more definitely what you're going to mean by certain words and and so on philosophy is not a panacea for this but that kind of clarification is is sort of part of what philosophers do as a preliminary to trying to 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 settle a, a question, and so they they they're used to it, and as well that gets you gives you kind of model for how to do it. I think I'm interested in your point about how philosophy interacts with language use. Would you say that the way we use language can 
sort of shape how we do philosophy as well? It's pretty much bound to because philosophy is is done almost entirely in language. And, you know, and so the language is what we have and limitations of the language w- will, to some extent, be limitations of what we can do in, in philosophy. But I mean, I don't think, you know, it's not that the language by itself sort of dictates to you w- what you have to think uh, philosophically, because, you know, notoriously philosophers disagree with each other. And and that includes, you know, a, a whole lot of philosophers who share the same uh, native language. And so there's room in the language for, for really for very radical disagreements as well. So as where it's not, it's not that it shapes what, what you're thinking to the you know, extent to which it leaves only one answer, but it's surely directing, you know, our attention in some ways rather than, than others. Interesting. So do you think that philosophy is a possibly a valuable tool in improving how we use language? I mean, I think it has some capacity for for that as i in the ways that i've been talking about but i you know i i don't think that one should expect philosophy you know to re, to really kind of radically change the way that we use language you know in part because of you know probably lots of aspects of the way we use language probably come from something pretty much like and some kind of innate language faculty that we can't do very much about and and also because the way philosophers are are interested in clarifying terms and so on is for particular theoretical purposes, and you know, and m- most of the time in ordinary life, we're, we're we're not using language for for theoretical purposes. We're using it for socialising or or whatever it is, and uh, and so if two people are you know just having a gossip or something, I mean, it's not it's not as though it makes sense for a philosopher to barge in and and tell them to you know how to to make you know their gossip more precise or something like that. Yeah, I find that interesting because one of the philosophers discussed on the episode was Gottlob Frege, and um, his writings on ambiguity, and then the sort of notation uh, he made to combat such a thing. Would you say that there has really been any attempts to? radically change language in the philosophical world or is it more often than not just an analysis rather than a prescription of what to do i mean frege himself he was he was very clear that what he was uh, doing was to produce an artificial language that would be more precise for the purposes of doing mathematics and you know m- maybe to some extent for theoretical science uh, beyond that and he wasn't offering his formal language as you know an alternative to you know a natural language like english or mandarin or, or whatever for all purposes uh, he he just thought of it as something that would be used for these very specific scientific purposes so in his case it was it was really only uh, you know it was an extension of um, the way in which we do most of of mathematics in mathematical notation rather than in just in words because you know because it, that is so much more effective and he he took that a further step but but not as part of any program to to kind of reform language uh in, in general i mean it turned out that the that the kind of logical devices that he introduced 
for those purposes actually have a wider application than he was he was expecting and you know and do help to some extent in in analyzing uh what's going on in in ordinary uh in natural languages when you look at, w- at what goes on in philosophy even even the very, quite technical philosophy i mean it's still the 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 case that the the as it were the the overall narrative is going to be in a natural language you know with words mostly being used with their normal meanings and and so on but but we've also got this extra kind of logical notation that we can use when we want to be really really precise about what what the structure of uh something that we're saying uh is intended to to be and so on and so you know we've we've got these extra aids but it's not like a wholesale reform of of language i mean you know some people believe in something which these days is called conceptual uh engineering which is the you know the idea that we might replace well they could talk about concepts but but in effect it really comes down to to words that we might replace the meanings of or change the meanings of some of our words in order to to make them somehow more uh, effective for social and political purposes but you know usually what they have in mind there is is a as a relatively limited uh project it's it's not a total reform of language yeah and i think that's interesting because that approach is distinct from the approach of somebody like uh Gigi Zamenhof who created Esperanto where that was meant to be basically a reform of language where everyone would speak an international language and it sounds like you're saying that the way philosophy interacts with language more has to do with making specific parts of life such as philosophy or mathematics more efficient yes i th- i think i think that's broadly right and you know i mean there are other kinds of reforms of l- language which um you know like sort of banishing racist terms or or you know with terms, with some kind of terms for racial ethnic groups with some negative connotation I mean, as we're trying to drive those out uh, you know which are motivated by moral and or political considerations rather than considerations about precise theorizing but uh, but i think it's still going to be the framework of, of a lot of the discussion will be a natural language and you know and then uh, as i say we can formulate you know some more precise theories w- w- in something like logical notation within that but but a lot of the the kind of informal explanation of how to understand these formulas is going to be done in english or whatever language it ha- you know whatever natural language it happens to be right and so then i wanted to sort of pivot to um the relationship between language and knowledge do you think that knowledge is sort of codified in a natural language or do you think they interact in some other way i just wanted to hear a little bit on your thoughts about that so one question is whether you can you can have knowledge without language and it seems to me there's a strong case for for saying yes because if you look at uh languageless animals like you know cats and dogs it seems that they actually know quite a bit about their environment i mean you know for example that the cat knows where the the mouse is uh, or, or something like that and you know obviously the cat 
isn't using a language to articulate its knowledge, but it still knows stuff. I mean, you you can't understand how you know animals can hunt each other or you know escape from uh, hunters or whatever without attributing some knowledge to them of of where things are and so on. So it's not that knowledge without language is impossible. It's it's just there are, seem to be quite strong limitations to what kind of knowledge you can have if you don't have a language. I mean, it's, it certainly seems like sort of abstract theoretical knowledge would not be something that you could have if you didn't have a, a language. And so, you know, once you get to, to knowledge that is expressed in language, then that knowledge is very strongly uh, shaped by by the language that it's expressed in. But, you know, if, if even in the case of human beings, if you think about the kind of knowledge we get from sense perception when you're looking around with your eyes open pretty much you're getting a stream of knowledge about the external world coming to, coming to you through your senses and the kind of knowledge that you have for example about you know when, when you look at a scene about where where objects are in relations to each other that doesn't seem to be language which is just fully uh, articulated in words, you know, because words would give you uh, something like a verbal description of a scene, whereas, you know, what we're getting in sense perception is something more like a picture of a scene. Uh, And so even for humans where we do have a language, it's not that all of our, our knowledge is in linguistic form. It's, I mean, quite a bit of it is, but, but, you know, we have to be open to getting knowledge in the, in these other formats in order to learn from sense perception. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because I've seen parallels to the notion that we don't necessarily do all of our thinking in linguistic terms, especially when it comes to learning a foreign language that, you know, the question is asked, should you learn the grammar and the rules of the language and then translate or should you just think in that language and operate as a native would. And it would seem to me that it can actually sort of change them on the level of the speaker that maybe once uh, someone has a lot of experience with the foreign language, they're no longer really translating. They just think in that other language and it seems automatic. So I think that that's an interesting point because I would think that it affects the way we learn languages is how we think for sure. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, people often talk about the direct method, which is just through immersion, the way that we learn our native language and versus the sort of the indirect method, which is when you get it from something more like formal instruction. I mean, interestingly, that kind of distinction is is relevant even to the the sorts of uh, formal language and notation that you get in, in logic and mathematics, because in many cases, even there, you actually have to learn some of this notation by immersion rather than by translating it into uh, some some language that you already know. I mean, for you know, for example, you know, in mathematics, what many people regard as the, the most basic language of mathematics is, is one in which you talk about sets and objects being members of sets and so on. And those notions of basic notions of set actually don't have formal definitions. I mean, they've, I mean, mathematicians write down some axioms about them, but they but they can't they're not defining them. I mean, because the only thing the only thing that they could define them in would be something like natural language, which is actually too vague and and not even quite what is really meant by these expressions. Right. I think that's an interesting point because um 
As somebody who enjoys learning foreign languages myself, I also find that a combination of both just throwing myself at the language, like you said, through immersion, through consuming content in the language, as well as some uh, explicit study is, is what's worked for me usually. The last topic I sort of wanted to touch on was the role philosophy plays in sort of explaining the way language impacts us in our daily lives. Do you think that it's a useful tool for discovering such a thing or just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that? Well, of course, linguistics and psychology are also very relevant there, although it's also the case that many of the ideas that linguists use in understanding meaning and understanding how that meaning is connected to the way we actually use the language in practice, many of those ideas were actually first produced by philosophers. Um, I mean, for example, many linguists use the idea of possible worlds and explaining meaning, but the, the idea of a possible world comes from uh, philosophy. So I, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you you meant, but one kind of idea that came out of philosophy, which does explain the way that we use language and uh, understand language uses in you know in more sophisticated ways is the idea of uh, what's called conversational implicature, which are things that are kind of implied by saying something, although they're not uh, they're not things that are actually said or even logic logical consequences of what you say. So, for example, you know if if I was talking about some uh, teacher and and I said that this teacher he was he was sober this afternoon. There's a very strong hint there that this teacher is you know it's relatively unusual for this teacher to be sober and you know and that he's drunk quite a lot of the time. But of course that's not required for what I said to be true. I mean he, it can be true that he's sober even even if he's a lifelong teetotaler and has never you know touched a drop of alcohol in his his life. Another kind of famous example is where somebody's writing a letter of recommendation for a student, and the letter just says his handwriting is neat and he uh, attends tutorials regularly, or something like like that. Where nothing negative is actually said about the student in the letter, but there's a strong implication just by the w- what's not in the letter that this the student is pretty dumb. Because you know, if, if they was if they were at all smart, that would be in the letter of recommendation. And it was a philosopher of language, Paul Paul Grice, who really drew attention to this phenomenon and and gave a very sophisticated uh, analysis of it in terms of the the kind of general principles of conversation about about you know the kind of social cooperation that's involved in having a, a conversation and how. Um, these implicatures are kind of generated by the need to make sense of why somebody's saying things that they're saying and and not saying other things and so on. Uh, in terms of you know the criteria of sort of relevance and informativeness and so on. So you know, th- so that's an example of a theory about language use, which was produced by this philosopher in the the nineteen. 50s and 60s and and which has been very very influential not just in philosophy but but in uh in linguistics in in understanding the way in in which people are operating in a conversation and how you know how much is going on beyond what they're explicitly saying is that the kind of thing that you had in mind i think it's a perfect thing i'm actually really glad you mentioned Grice's maxims his work because i think that that in particular 
is very relevant to how we communicate on a daily basis, that there's actually a reason why these things that sound off-putting to us do sound off-putting, because they're common threads we can trace through our language use. Professor Williamson, thank you again for your time. I'm sure our listeners are going to gain a lot out of the discussion we had today. Thanks for listening to the Philosophy Cast. We hope you learned something new or gained a deeper understanding of the world around you. We'd love to know what you think, and you can tell us your thoughts at thephilosophycast at gmail.com or philosophycast.com. This has been Alexander Chotai, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Philosophy Cast. Thank you.